we're in the middle of a series on the parables of Jesus. And today we're going to look at this parable called the Good Samaritan. And I want to just talk about this. We've talked about it already in our community groups, and today we're going to explore it in a more in-depth way. It's a very famous, famous, famous parable. Everyone knows what a Good Samaritan is. In fact, it's so, so famous that the word Good Samaritan actually means something to us. <laughs> we know what a Good Samaritan is. Everyone knows. It's, 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 the word now applies to any charitable person, especially one who like the man in the parable, rescues or helps out a needy stranger. It's very, everyone knows. If you just say, oh, good Samaritan, we know they're talking about someone who's nice, even though we've never met in our lives a Samaritan. It's also known, perhaps you've heard the word, in a uh, different varying of different Christian organizations, the Samaritan's purse, the Samaritan's, just by itself, sisters of the good Samaritan's, um, good Samaritan Hospitals are scattered all over the world. You can go anywhere in the world and find somewhere a Good Samaritan hospital. So the word is popular, obviously. And then also, you might have heard of the word Good Samaritan in regards to legal laws. There's a lot of laws written. There's more than one Samaritan law. There's Samaritan laws. And these laws were established to offer legal legal protection for people who give assistance to those who are injured, ill, or in peril or otherwise incapacitated. Listen to this. This protection is intended to reduce bystanders' hesitation to assist for fear of being sued. The Good Samaritan law says, you can help people. Don't worry. They're not going to sue you. If you see someone who needs CPR, don't hesitate. You don't have time to hesitate. Jump in there. Don't worry about being sued. Isn't that silly? Hey, I've got some more to tell you about the Good Samaritan. Artists have um, uh, drawn pictures. This is a picture someone drew. By Rembrandt, Rembrandt, beautiful, beautiful, famous picture of the Good Samaritan taking the man off his horse. Van Gogh, everyone knows who Van Gogh is, right? Van Gogh, beautiful picture. This is a famous one, again, taking the man or putting him on his his horse. I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name, but I'm just going to say it really fast so you won't know. Conti, famous artist, probably Italian. My wife probably knows how to say it. Um, this guy has actually done four or five different pictures of just the Good Samaritan. His last name is Holder, Hodler, I mean, uh, Hodler, and uh, it's a pretty good one. You can see, you can see the, uh, the, the, the emotion, can't you, in the compassion that this man has, that the Samaritan has for the man. Um, here's another picture from the same guy. Uh, I like these pictures. So here's the last one, another famous one. Kelly, how do you say that guy's name? When it's... When it's this is a very famous picture. If you look up Google, if you Google Good Samaritan, this is probably one of the ones you see the most. So as you can see, this is a world-famous parable. I mean, everyone knows what a Good Samaritan is, and so therefore it's probably pretty important. We need to understand it. But I, I want to say this. I want to I shock you if I can. I don't think we really understand it. What if, for over 2,000 years, we've misunderstood it and maybe even misnamed it? What if it's not about a Good Samaritan at all? I'd like to argue that this parable is not about the Good Samaritan, but it's about Jesus, as most all the parables that Jesus tells are about him. And by the way, Jesus is not a Samaritan. (laughs) So I want to explore that today. I wonder, and I also want to do this because I think that a fresh look at it, a fresh understanding of it might change the way we apply it to our lives. Because ask yourself this, and then we'll talk about it later. How has the Good Samaritan really affected you so far? You've heard the story a bazillion times. Has it really moved you to change the way you live your life and to really be a good Samaritan? 
Maybe if we saw Jesus in the parable, it would, in fact, change the way we live our life. Robert Farrar Coppin, the person who I'm taking, stealing most of this information from, refers to the parable of the Good Samaritan as the first of the misnamed parables because it's not primarily about a Samaritan at all. In the same way, the prodigal son is not so much about a boy who was wayward and then returned home as it is about a father who gives forgiveness to both sons. In the same way, the vineyards, the workers in the vineyards, we call it the workers in the vineyards, that parable is not about the workers. It's about the vineyard owner who is willing to pay equal pay for unequal work, and we call it vineyard workers. So maybe the Good Samaritan is a misnamed parable. So before we begin, let's just lay all of our cards on the table. All of us, you too, Paul. Let's just lay our cards on the table, and I want to ask you this question. How do you understand the parable, or how do you interpret it, or what do you think it means? Okay, so what I'd like to do, for those of you who are visiting, we like to have table talks. Um, it's a part of our mission to build community. And so we're just going to turn in on each other in a friendly way and discuss um, this question. What does the parable mean, and how do you interpret it, or how do you apply it? Now, I'm going to play some jazzy music in the background in case you don't like talking. Okay, let's do it. Three minutes. So as we've been studying the parables, we've been noticing that all of the parables have to do with these five things, these categories, being last, least, little, lost, or being a loser, and being dead. So Jesus is often um, telling these parables, and you'll see the last, the least, the little, the lost, the dead in the parables. Think of, for instance, the parable of the lost sheep, for instance. There's a good example. And it seems as if Jesus is after the last, the least, the little, the lost, and the dead. And he's the opposite of after those who are the opposite of those things. <laughs> and so as we look at this parable, I want to ask the question, how does this fit into the theme of being last, least, little, lost, and dead? And I think it's pretty obvious. I think you might, you might agree. In fact, Robert Capon says, the Good Samaritan is a, a veritable. Do you know what that word means? See, I didn't. I had to look it up in Wikipedia, and it means genuine. And then the next word is peon. Pain, I don't even know how to pronounce it, much less what it means. So again, Wikipedia came to the rescue, and it means song. To lostness, outcastness, and even in a certain sense, death. This is Robert Cappen, okay? Now, I would not have said it that way. I would have said it like this. The Good Samaritan is a genuine song to lostness, outcastness, and even a sense of death. In other words, if you read the parable, you can hear the song playing in the background, last, least, little, lost, and especially death. And I want you to see it. I think you'll see that it's pretty obvious because there's four characters in Jesus' story. We're going to look at Jesus' story in a minute, but I know you already know it. Um, the first, first person is called the man. That's it. He's just called the man. <laughs> the second person is a priest. The next guy is a Levite. And then the fourth guy is a Samaritan. So the first two people who are entering into the scene after the man gets beat up are two religious leaders. These are the winners Okay, in life. These are the, 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 the good guys who are winners, and they're too cool to help because they're, 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 so, they're so winners. And then the next one is a Samaritan who's clearly a loser, right? And Jesus makes the loser to be the one who's actually the one offering the help. And so, as you mentioned before, Samaritans in that day were outcasts. They were despised. They were enemies of the Jews. So, obviously, so Jesus is telling a parable. Two winners... And one big old loser. And the two winners look like big old losers in the story because they don't help. And the big old loser that everyone knows is a loser, the Samaritan, is, ends up being the good guy. So this becomes an offensive story to the man who asked the question. But let me just be honest. There is actually someone in the story who's a bigger loser 
isn't he? There's a bigger loser in the story, and that is the man. Honestly speaking, this man, he has no name, and he's been beaten and left for dead. Jesus says, practically dead. So if there's anyone who's the biggest loser in the story, it's the man. I know that this story is called the Good Samaritan, but maybe it shouldn't be called the Good Samaritan. Maybe it should be called the man. (laughs) The parable of the man. Um, Robert... uh, I know the, the most common interpretation and application of this parable has been to encourage us to look like the Samaritan, be like the Samaritan. But I want us to set our eyes not on the Samaritan, but on the man. Who, who is this man? Uh, let's explore how we might change the way we look at the parable and, and even look at our lives if we focus on the man rather than the Samaritan. Here's a question, and I've asked this already. How has the parable already affected the way you live your life? Do you all of a sudden want to help everybody? Do you all of a sudden want to give your life and help your enemies? And I think the way we typically interpret it, the answer has to be no. It has basically become a little nice story about being a nice guy. Be nice. Be nice. Or or, or another way of saying it is most men are bad. Two out of three are bad. One is good. Be good. That's really what the story is about, isn't it? Be a good guy. Don't be a, a bad guy. So I believe that Jesus is the main character in the story. He's the guy. Now, I'm going to push it. I'm going to push it, and I'm going to be honest about me pushing it. But I think Jesus is the guy. I want to entertain that Jesus is the main character, and I want you to do it with me. Because Jesus is usually the main character in the story, isn't he? Yes. Jesus is an innocent man, by the way, who was robbed and beaten within an inch of his life and left for dead. Isn't it true? Isn't it true? Listen to what Robert Capon says. That runs counter, of course, to the better part of 2,000 years' worth of interpretation, but I shall insist on it. This parable, like so many of Jesus' other parables, most telling ones, has been misnamed. It is not primarily about the Samaritan, but about the man on the road. So let's look at the parable again, verse by verse, and see what looking at it in that way might do to radically change our lives. All right, let's read the parable. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, "Uh, And who is my neighbor? Now, we'll come back to the lawyer in a little bit. We have to get back to him. But we want to move on. Jesus launches into this parable. The parable is the answer to the lawyer's question. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So first character we get is just a man. He has no name. That's all we get. Um, He's a nameless man. He seems innocent enough. He's not doing anything wrong. Uh, He's just traveling on the road, but then he's overtaken by thieves. He's beaten. He's left for dead. Now, you're not supposed to um, uh, allegorize parables unless Jesus allegorizes them, (laughs) and he always does, but we're not supposed to allegorize parables. So I don't want to push this too hard, but I can't help but push it a little bit. Jesus was also beaten um, within an inch of his life, and he was hung on a cross and left to dead, and he just so happened to be hung between two thieves between two robbers. In fact, Luke is the only gospel writer who mentions the two thieves and the two robbers. Can't help but think there's a parallel there. So here we got a man who's beaten by thieves and left for 
dead. There's a lot of similarities we'll see in, the, in this story. But before we tell the story, I want to I show you this. This is a map of, of Jerusalem, um, and I want you to see this journey. Um, the journey from Jerusalem, here's Jerusalem here. Do you see that? Do you see that right there? That's Jerusalem. And then this right here is Jericho. And in order to get to Jericho, you had to go down this big hill to get there. That's a big, steep hill. So it's a very, very dangerous, dangerous journey. In fact, Jerusalem sits at 2,500 feet above sea level. And then Jericho, this other city on the other side, is negative 180 feet below. So it's below, 850 feet below sea level. That, with some bad math, is about 30, 33.33, right? Miles. Feet, I mean, and it's only within 18 miles. So within 18 miles, they got to rush down this hill. Do you see how steep this is? I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, the Grand Canyon or something. Have you guys ever hiked the Grand Canyon? Oh, Kelly and I have. About three miles of it, right? <laughs> it is steep. And then going down is pretty fun, and going up is just as fun. Um, that's a big, steep hill, and it's very dangerous. It's dangerous because the physical journey is hard, clearly. Uh, but between, here you got Jerusalem, it's the capital city up on the mountain, and then you got Jericho. Jericho is 850 feet below sea level, so it is an oasis. Palm trees, water, it's beautiful. Both cities are big cities, lucrative cities. So anyone traveling between these two probably got some traveler's checks, you know, in their pocket. So it was a very common place for thieves and robbers to hide. All you got to do is hide behind the bend. And when the guys come around the bend, boom, hit them, take their money, and then you're gone. So it's a very dangerous place. In fact, this place is called, listen to this, the Valley of the Shadow of Death. You know that psalm in the Bible, Psalm 23, that was written? Yo, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You know that, you know that parable? That's, it's about this place. Death is your shadow. As you're walking, death is going to get you one way or another. Well, back to our parable. So Jesus says this. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side as well. I want, I want to highlight that Jesus says, by chance. You see, these winners are such winners, they shouldn't even really be on this road. They should have been able to fly there, take first class, you know what I mean, to, 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 to there. It just happened to by chance. They were on this road. They, wouldn't, they shouldn't really even be there. And they're so important. These people are so important that they cannot risk their life. Now, I know what, you've probably heard sermons about this before, so let me just address this. I could exegete for a long time saying, well, they're Levites. Well, they're priests, and they're probably on their way to the temple, and they can't be unclean, and so they can't touch the dead man, and that would make them, that's why they did it. And so, see, it's legalism that really separated the, blah, blah, blah. We can go into all of that, but I want to say, you know what? It's just excuses. They have excuses, and you have excuses. Their excuses might be Sunday school answer excuses. They're on their way to temple, and they have to be clean in order to make the sacrifices. Or they might just be good old lame old excuses. They were too cool. They're too, they're too much like winners. They, they don't have time to risk their life for this guy. Self-preservation, got to go. I'm in the valley of shadow of death. I'm not going to stick around for some lame-o who's half dead. Anyway, what, am I, what can I do? I risk my own life. Excuses, excuses, excuses. But Jesus then says this, a Samaritan came. 
Oh, and now the story just got good. If you're the lawyer of the law, and Jesus told two stories about two people kind of like lawyers being kind of putzes, if you ask me, and then Jesus says, but then a Samaritan came, you would start to pay attention. Already this parable is extremely offensive. The religious so-called good guys clearly are the bad guys, and the outcast loser is the actual good guy. Now, remember the, uh, the priest and the Levite were passing by chance? But the Levite, I mean, the, the Samaritan is not by chance, is he? He was journeying. This is what he does. He journeys on this road. He's a journeyer, journeyer, journeyer. He's from the band Journey. You know, he's on, he's on this road together all the time. What I think about it is he's, this is his hood. He's used to this place. He knows this place. And so maybe that's why he was willing to stop, because if you're from the hood and you see people in the hood who need help, you're going to help them, right? So here, here's what I want to say. This least last little lost thing is important. That's why I want us to embrace what it means to be the last and the least and the little, because we're not going to help people. We're not going to be willing to help people unless we identify with them like the Samaritan, I think, is identifying with this band. It takes a loser to know a loser. A winner will never see the loser completely look right over him. Martin Luther King preached a sermon on this, and he said this. The first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed that question entirely. He said, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? The next verse. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he, he set him on his own animal, which I'm assuming is a donkey or a horse, and he brought him to an inn and, looked and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So Jesus spends really two short verses setting up the parable. There's a Levite, there's a priest, there's a Samaritan. But then he spends several verses unpacking all the detail that the Samaritan gives to this man. He is lavishing care on him. A lot of details. Let's look at the details. Um, again, he puts, he puts um, it costs him a lot, doesn't it? This isn't a little thing. He doesn't just, un he doesn't just throw some money his way or put some money in the, in the coin you know, bell ringing bucket. You know what I mean? He actually stops and takes care of this guy. It says he poured out his oil on his wounds, which I would have been thinking, shoot, I could use some of that oil, you know, for the journey. Dip it in some bread with some garlic on it. You know what I mean? That'd be good. He's just going to pour it on some loser's wounds. And he pours out wine. I'm even going to go there, okay? Puts him on his horse. Now he's got to walk. And he takes him to the inn, and he gives him money to take care of him, and then he promises to pay whatever the innkeeper needs. That's, that's gamble. That's a gamble. Gives him his credit card, runs the risk of getting his identity stolen, you know? Now, again, I don't want to make too much of it, because I know, it's, you know you're not supposed to push allegory, but now that I see it, I just can't help it. Do you notice that the man puts on oil... And the Samaritan puts oil on the man and wine on the, this half-dead man. And I can't help but think that oil and wine, they appear a lot in the story of Jesus, don't they? There's a woman who washes Jesus' feet with expensive oil. She anoints him for his death, the Bible tells us. Jesus, he basically sets up a sacrament for us to do as often as we gather, to drink wine as a symbol of his blood, which was spilt or shed for us. Again, I don't want to push it too hard, but man, I can't help but see there's oil and there's wine, and this is a dead man being ministered to by a Samaritan. Maybe the man is Jesus. Which of these three, Jesus says, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. 
And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. If Jesus is the nameless half-dead man, then the Samaritan is the one who proves to be neighborly, right? That's clear. Who was Jesus' neighbor in the story? The Samaritan. Um, That's what Jesus asked the lawyer. Who was the one who showed him neighborliness? And the lawyer says, obviously the one who showed him mercy. Jesus concludes the entire scene by saying, go, therefore, and do likewise. (laughs) Go, therefore, and do likewise. Leaving us still with the question, who is my neighbor? For most of my life, this parable and the phrase Good Samaritan has always meant simply, be nice to others and help them out, especially when you're on a road. (laughs) No, I'm not even kidding. You've probably even said it yourself. Have you ever been stranded on a road? And then one of the first things out of your mouth is like, well, maybe someone will be a good Samaritan and help us. Anyone say that before? I've said it before. My mom used to always say it because we were always stranded on sides of roads for some reason. And she'd always say, I wish someone would be a good Samaritan. That's how I knew the story. Or I've even said it before. Today I was a good Samaritan. I helped a little old lady across the road. You know, we're always, for some reason, a road has to be involved in our application of this good Samaritan. And it's also one of the only times we ever think about being a good Samaritan, isn't it? You see someone on the side of the road. You feel a little guilty because you don't stop. You know you're not a good Samaritan. You're a Levite. Passing by the other side. And you got excuses. I've got somewhere to be. Traffic is moving really fast. If I stop, I could die. <laughs> I've got kids in my car. Bottom line is the parable just means be nice. It's, it's a nice guy parable. Be nice to people. That's what I think the phrase means to almost anyone who's ever used it. He was a nice guy. He was being good. And so in that way, Jesus' parable has been boiled down to imitate the hero in the story, which is, of course, the good Samaritan. And now we all still don't know what a Samaritan is, but we know what a good Samaritan is. Now, you already mentioned before, Jason, that the Jews despised and avoided Samaritans like the plague. And so the, so the one way that we could interpret this parable is that you're supposed to love your enemy, you're supposed to love people you despise. But I'm not really sure that Jesus meant that as his main point. It surely is a point, though. If anything, it might be the Samaritan is your neighbor, go therefore and love him. That'd be good. Your Samaritan's your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And your neighbor happens to be the person you hate the most. But I don't even really think that's the main point either, to be honest with you. And I'll tell you why. Because how good are we at doing that? It obviously hasn't sunk in or hasn't really changed us. Here's why I don't think we should imitate the Samaritan. That's what the parable is, right? Go and do likewise. Imitate the Samaritan. But here's the problem. Our temptation as human beings, and as evangelicals, I would say, is always to imitate the hero in the story. It's always our temptation. There's the hero. Be like the hero. Be good Samaritans, not bad Samaritans. But I want to say that the Bible is not about heroes that you're supposed to imitate. (laughs) At least once a week, I get to put our kids to bed. Um, The other six days, Kelly does it. Um, And while we're there, we have the Jesus Storybook Bible. I know you've heard me talk about the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you don't have it, you should get it for yourself. It is it is good for adults. It comes with a CD that you can put on, so you don't have to read the Bible to your kids. The man on the CD can. And uh, he's got a British accent, and he does it right. Josiah always tells me, no, you're supposed to do it like this. Um, and the introduction to this Bible is just, it, it, sometimes I listen to it, and even after hearing it a dozen times, still brings tears to my eyes. And I, I want to share, share with you what it says. It says, some people think, I'm not going to do a British accent any longer. <laughs> some... <laughs> That's Australian anyway. South African, Australian, British, they all sound the same to me. I could pull out a Texas accent pretty easily, though. Some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. 
Well, the Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people who you should copy. Well, the Bible does have some heroes in it. But as you will soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes and sometimes even on purpose. They get afraid, they run away. At times, they're darn right mean, or downright mean, excuse me. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about one young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, and rescues the ones he loves. You see, the Bible's not about heroes that you should imitate. So when Jesus says, go and do likewise, I don't think he's saying, go and be like the Good Samaritan. Because it's about Jesus. The Bible's about Jesus. Come and say it with me. It's all about Jesus, not about Samaritans. And this tells us that it's really about Jesus who comes and rescues the ones he loves. And let me ask you this. How does Jesus... Track with me on this. How does Jesus rescue the ones he loves? Does he do it by fixing our flat tires? (laughs) Does he do it by being nice to us when we are on the side of the road? No. He does it by dying. Strangely enough, the way that he rescues us is by becoming least, last, little, lost, and in the end, dead. You see, the Bible is not about following good examples. It's actually about following bad examples. Think about it for a second. Like the bad example of a Samaritan who willingly risks his entire life for some guy on the side of the road. It's a bad example. In fact, even if he's good and he doesn't get sued, when he gets home, his wife's not gonna, his goodness is going to go right out the window, right? Where were you? What did you do? What are you talking about? You gave our whole credit card to the hotel guy? And what happened to the wine? It's, he's not going to be, so it's a bad example. Or the chief bad example is this, willing to give your life for a bunch of people who will eventually want to kill you. Here's what I'm getting at. This parable is about so much more than being nice. It's about dying and selfishness and being willing to be last, least, and lost, and little. Again, Robert Capon I am, of course, aware of the fact that Jesus ends the parable precisely on the note of imitation. You, too, go and do likewise. But the common good works interpretation of of the imitation to which Jesus invites us all to is too easily gives the gospel a fast shuffle. True enough, we are called to imitation. But imitation of what exactly? Is it not the imitation of Christ? He uses a Latin word there, imitatio Christi, which is actually a, a famous book. Um, about imitating Christ. Um, The following of Jesus, that's what it's about, following Jesus, imitating Christ. And is not that following of him far more than just a matter of doing kind acts? Yes, it is. It's It's not that following of him into the only mystery that can save the world, namely his passion, death, and resurrection. Is not that following of him the taking up of his cross. You see, by the imitation of this man, we never ever mean those things. We mean helping people on roads. We mean being nice to the person who needs someone to be nice to them. We don't mean taking up crosses and being willing to die with those who are almost dead. What our minds instantly go to is something like pay it forward. That's the modern version of the Good Samaritan, I think. Pay it forward. Or I think the Christian radio station calls it, you've been joyed. Joy somebody today. So pay for the guy at Starbucks behind you. 
be a good Samaritan and enjoy that person behind you. Now, I don't want to bash that too much. Next time you want to pay someone behind you at Starbucks, let me know. I want to pull up behind you. Um, but let me tell you what's wrong with that. Because in that scenario, you get to pick your neighbor. And you get to pick a neighbor that doesn't have a face and who doesn't have a voice. And then worse than that, you get to pat yourself on the back afterwards as being the winner. Look at me. I bought this, guys. Double like a Cheeto. And then that misses the whole point entirely. It's not our goal to become the winner. It's our goal to become the loser. The parable is not about being a winner in your niceness. It's about becoming a loser and identifying in a real costly way to the least of these. So let's go back. We, gotta ask, we haven't answered the question yet. Who is my neighbor? That's, that's the question that started this whole thing. The lawyer, who is a lawyer, which means he's um, a scholar of the law, the Torah. He knows the law. He knows the law. I mean, he talks about this stuff all the time. And he wants to, the Bible says he wants to justify himself. And so he asks, who is my neighbor? And that is the question that you have to ask yourself tonight. And it's not the guy at Starbucks behind you, I promise. Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor, you can answer that question in a couple of ways. Um, it takes two people to be a neighbor, right? You've got a neighbor, and then you've got the other neighbor. <laughs> you, you know, you, you can't just be a neighbor. You've got to have someone who's a neighbor that you can be neighborly to. And both of them in this story represent the least, the last, the little, and the lost, and the dead, the, the good Samaritan and the dead man. So there's different ways to read this parable. Here's one. Question, who is my neighbor? Answer, the loser outcast Samaritan. That's your neighbor. Application, love losers and love outcasts, enemies. And that's a good, good application. Another way of answering it would be this. Question, who is my neighbor? Answer, the half-dead man, who, by the way, might represent Jesus. So you see, Jesus is your neighbor, and then you imitate the Good Samaritan by ministering to those who are like Christ or ministering to those who are Christ, half-dead men and women. So let me just drive home two kinds of, two big, huge points. Number one. You don't get to choose your neighbors. <laughs> They're chosen for you. The spirit of the Old Testament law says, love your neighbor as yourself, which means you should love the least, the last, the little, and the lost as yourself. You don't get to choose them. It's the one that's in front of you, the half-dead guy. It's the least guy, the last guy, the lost guy. Here's how I know that. Because psychiatrists' couches are not kept warm by patients complaining of the depredations of total strangers. Let that sink in for a little bit. <laughs> No one is sitting on a psychiatrist's couch saying, I can't believe it. I never get anyone to pay for my Starbucks. Well, that guy's got problems already, if that's what he's talking about, right? They're not talking about how people wrong them that they don't know. They're there at that psychiatrist's couch talking about people who they know, who they work with every day, probably who they live with more than likely. So you don't get to choose your neighbor. You already live with them or next to them or your cubicle is next to them. Your classroom is next to them. That's your neighbor. God's placed them right there. You don't get to choose. It's easy to be compassionate to strangers. I used to, one of my favorite pastors used to always say this. He said that the thing that hurt him the most was he heard this guy talking about, uh, this wife talking about this guy, her husband. And she would say of him, he is so tender and compassionate and kind to waitresses at Denny's. But he, I, just, I just want him to treat me like a waitress at Denny's, is what she would say. Because he could be nice to a total stranger, but he could not be nice the people who knew him and the people who he knew. You don't get to choose your neighbors. Number two, this parable is not a trite gestures of kindness. 
pay it forward and help people on roads. It's not about that, I don't think. It's about, it's deep, it's costly. It's gonna cost you your life. Love is costly. You must make the loser's burden your own burden. It means going, it's going to cost you everything, everything. That's why I ask at the beginning, <laughs> how has this parable affected you so far? Maybe it inspired you to pat yourself on the shoulder and pay someone Starbucks. But has it really caused you to, I mean, in a costly way, help those who are really in need, losers? And so in conclusion, I want to say this. I want to center this whole thing back on Christ. If you want this parable to really shatter your selfishness and lame excuses, I think you need to leave here today seeing Jesus as the man on the road. He's the biggest little loser of them all, amen? He is. He's just lying there, dead. And that is the way I believe Jesus wants us to identify him. He, that is the way I think Jesus wants to identify himself. I'm lying there, dead. You can't even tell what I look like. I'm so mangled. Who is that man? Don't know. He's just a man. That's Jesus. Jesus seems to identify himself with people like that, doesn't he? I mean, he does it in the most alarming way. In fact, he essentially says, I am them, and they are me. I'm the dead people. I'm the least, the losers, the outcasts, and they are me. That's what Jesus says. You remember it, right? He tells the parable. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And when I was a stranger, you welcomed me. And when I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was sick, you visited me. And when I was in prison, you came to me. And then they ask, Lord, when, were, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and et cetera, et cetera? And he says, if you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. I'm the least of these. I'm the outcast. I'm the last, the least, the loser, the lost, the dead. And he says the parable again in the opposite, right? If you've done it not to the least of these, you've done it not to me. So I want to conclude with this quote. If there is any ministering to be imitated in the Good Samaritan, go and do likewise, example. It is the ministry of Jesus in his passion. As that passion is to be found in the least of his brethren, namely in the hungry, the thirsty, the outcast, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned, in whom he dwells and through whom he invites us to become his neighbors in death and resurrection. So don't you see this parable is about so much more than being nice and helping people on roads? It's about ministering to Jesus, who, by the way, is found in the losers around you that you tend to avoid like the plague. We're going to end in communion. And as we um, come forward to take communion, um, of course we're confessing our sin. That's what Paul tells us to do, confess your sin before you take the bread that was um, broken, his body is broken for that sin. But also I would like to challenge you to think about Christ being the ultimate loser who was willing to give his life so that you could have yours, and at what cost he gave it, and at what cost you're willing to give yours, and whether or not you will do more than just help people on the sides of roads, and more than buy people Starbucks next time you're in the drive-thru, but actually someone, you probably know who they are right now, you're probably thinking of them, that you need to just identify with and come down to their hood and love them, because if you don't, what will happen to them? Let's pray. <clears throat>